You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. And welcome to Spookulative Evolution. Hello, David. Hello, David. (laughs) I I expected that. (laughs) And hello, listeners. Welcome to the final episode of Spooky 2022. Four out of four, Spookulative Evolution. We are back with one more... Dungeons and Dragons Monster. Yes, we've been visiting the world of D&D with this year's Spooky. As usual, we will be picking a monster to look at through the lens of real-world evolution, natural selection, and anatomy to figure out how could something evolve to appear, behave, and hopefully function, fill the role of that said monster. This year, we have done Owlbears, Displacer Beasts, Beholders, And now our final creature is the Mimic. Which is just one of the coolest and most fun D&D monsters. Oh yeah, they're so weird and so goofy, but also awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. So once again, for anyone who might not be familiar, Dungeons & Dragons D&D is the tabletop game where you take a character that you've created, an adventurer, and go into a magical world, go on missions and quests to try to get gold and riches and honor, Typically fighting bad guys, but especially monsters. Yes. And this monster, the Mimic, is one of the most iconic of D&D monsters. That really captures the role a D&D monster plays in Dungeons & Dragons. Yes. The concept here is that this is an organism that mimics typically a treasure chest or other inanimate object. A door, a chair perhaps... And that when the adventurers get too close to said mimic and try to interact with it, it reveals itself and attempts to consume the interloper. Yes, the classic image of the mimic is adventurers walk up to a treasure chest and go, oh, good treasure, and then reach for it. And then the chest grows teeth and bites them. (laughs) Yep, opens up the lid to find a (laughs) mouth inside. So here in just a bit, we will go over what a mimic is and the history and all that. And then... We will come up with an evolutionary pathway to see if we can come up with a way to produce something like the Mimic in the real natural world. And as always, we invite you, the listeners, to join us on this critical thinking game. Yeah. Uh, ours is, will not be the only answer. Let's see if you can come up with something, too. This is just meant to be fun, so if you have ideas, we'd love to hear them. And to start us off, David, what's a Mimic? I love the Mimic, <laughs> and I love using it. In D&D games. (laughs) So once again, Mimic, classic, iconic, traditional D&D creature. Like you described, a Mimic is a shape-shifting creature that tends to take the form of inanimate objects. Uh, Chests, doors, tables, chairs, weapons, basically any object you might find while exploring a dungeon can potentially be a Mimic. The way that this often plays out in D&D games is that you have a bunch of happy, excited adventurers, and then one day they come across an object that attacks them and turns out to be a mimic, and then your adventurers don't trust anything ever again. Yes. So typically when you encounter a mimic in the game of Dungeons & Dragons, what it is 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 an object. It's a door, it's a false wall, it's something like that. But some further information, once again pulling from the Monster Manual just for 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons to keep things relatively streamlined and short. According to the 5th edition Monster Manual, 
The natural form of a mimic, when it is not impersonating an object, is an amorphous blob. <laughs> there are a bunch of creatures in D&D that are referred to as oozes. The mimic in 5th edition is not technically an ooze, but its natural form is very similar, that it is this blobby, oozy creature. The mimic can alter its outward appearance to resemble objects, but also the material that objects are made of. So it can adjust its appearance to resemble the, the outward look and texture of wood or stone. When a mimic impersonates an object, it is nearly unrecognizable. It is a almost perfect impersonation. There are two reasons why mimics do this. There's the gameplay reason, which is to mess with the players and have them stumble into a trap. Yep. But, according to the Monster Manual, the canonical reason why mimics do this is because they're predators. Mm -hmm. They transform into an object to lure prey. Because D&D is a world where if you sit in one place long enough looking like a treasure chest, eventually prey will show up and you'll get to eat the people that come to try to get the treasure. Well, I like that we've encountered a couple of times where they talk about the way the creature preys on things. And it is very much obviously built around the idea that this is a party that will go after the predator. Yes. When someone touches the mimic in its transformed state, it excretes an adhesive which sticks on to the prey, typically the person, or the weapon. So if a person reaches out and grabs the door handle and it turns out to be a mimic, they are now stuck to the door handle. Yep. Or they swing their sword at it, the sword is stuck on the mimic object. Literally glued in place. Mimics are described as being cunning enough to lay ambushes, so there is some level of hunting predatory intelligence. They know what kind of things to be turned into but that they also generally are found alone. This is not a group that will hunt in packs. Uh, you're not typically going to find a whole colony of mimics living in one dungeon. Although, if you have a particularly intrepid dungeon master, maybe you will. <laughs> we, we like the term sadistic. <laughs> <laughs> the book also notes that some mimics are have been noted to evolve intelligence enough to speak. There are mimics every now and then that can speak negotiate with players and essentially the way that this is probably going to play out in the way that it is described in the book is that the mimic will offer information or passage in exchange for food or something otherwise it will eat the party yes in terms of game statistics getting into the stat block the way the mimic functions in the game once again it is described as a monstrosity like the owl bear like the displacer beast mimics are just a monster which is, stands out from the other two, because those were very much animals that had been altered to fit a monster role in the game. Yes. You know, we took a bear slash owl, and we took a big cat and monstered them up a bit. This is a fairly unrecognizable. Like, this doesn't mm -hmm. immediately hearken to any recognizable organism that no. you've monstered up. You just made a monster. So when I first found out they were monstrosities, I was expecting them to be a bit more alien or a bit more otherworldly. Yeah, the category of monstrosity in D&D, particularly in 5th edition, the current edition of Dungeons and Dragons, monstrosity is kind of a catch-all yep. for the things that don't fit neatly in a lot of the other categories. <laughs> when a mimic is in combat, it will attack by either biting because it can make a mouth, or with its pseudopods. So it just reaches out an amorphous blob of its body and slams it into something. They have the ability, of course, to shapeshift into an inanimate object or back to their true form. Mimics are, in terms of size category, medium. And medium is the size of, like, 
a human being or a wolf or something like that. So a mimic can transform into a table or a chair or a door, things that are roughly human-sized. The typical mimic is not a huge, large creature, not even as large as owl bears and mm. things we've discussed in the past. Like I said, when a mimic is shapeshifted, it is indistinguishable from an ordinary object. You don't know it's a mimic until you touch it. And in terms of their stats and abilities, the one thing that really stands up above the rest with mimics is that they have an excellent stealth stat. <laughs> They're really good at hiding because of course they are. Yes. And then of course the mimic has an ability called adhesive. When it's an object, a creature, or another object that touches it gets stuck and grabbed. And again, in terms of game mechanics, it is particularly difficult to escape the grab of a mimic. Pulling away from a mimic is harder than pulling out of the grab of another creature. And then just one more uh, little fun note, mimics are immune to acid damage. Oh, interesting. So there's that too. Hmm. There are a variety of different kinds of mimics. So I went searching for different variations on the mimic theme. What I've been describing is the standard mimic. There are mimics of various different sizes. I've seen large mimics, juvenile mimics, spitting mimics, uh, yeah. which are mimics that spit acid. But the one that I wanted to make special mention of is a kind of mimic that was introduced in Fizzbond's Treasury of Dragons, which is a horde mimic. <laughs> so whereas a typical mimic is, you know, treasure chest sized, or it's the size of a nice big goblet or a ceremonial sword, and it transforms into one of those treasures, a horde mimic is enormous and it takes on the appearance of an entire horde of treasure. <laughs> the book describes that horde mimics often will be allies to dragons, and they'll serve as a decoy dragon's horde. That's great. And that they're huge, they can release an acidic mist, but they're also intelligent. Mm -hmm. They can communicate telepathically to either talk to adventurers or talk to the dragon that I guess they're making friends with. So the, the, this variant of a mimic is a mimic that mimics an entire room full of stuff. <laughs> Which is neat. Yeah, and like the other monsters we've dealt with, this is one of the old school D&D monsters. Not quite as old in the fact that it made its appearance in the first Monster Manual in 1977 instead of back in Greyhawk in 1975. Yeah, so it's two years younger than yes. the other ones we've talked about. But once again... First edition, and it's been in every edition since. It was created by Gary Gygax, the originator of Dungeons & Dragons. And it was made to be an underground monster for dungeons. Like it, This was custom made for this game yes. to serve as an obstacle to adventurers, specifically in underground dungeons. Yeah, the classic idea of Dungeons & Dragons is a bunch of adventurers going through old ruins or underground caverns and fighting monsters and finding treasures. Hence the name Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. These days, if you're a big fan of D&D, you'll know, especially if you're familiar with watching things like Critical Role or Acquisitions Incorporated or the big D&D stuff, that you can often play lots and lots of D&D without ever going in a dungeon. Yes. But that was the original concept. So the mimic was a natural outgrowth of, yeah, let's have something in the dungeon that is impersonating the things that the adventurers want to grab. Well, it's a trap in the form of a monster. Yes, like, absolutely. It, it serves the same thing as a pitfall or spikes in the wall or darts coming out of... Yeah. That plus teeth. Yes, exactly. But this one wants to eat you. <laughs> yeah, I think the picture in the monster manual, if I remember right, is the treasure chest with teeth 
around the opening and then a big tongue sticking out. Yeah, that the lid of the chest makes up the top and bottom jaw and then a big purple tongue coming out of the inside. (laughs) As far as any extra bits about their anatomy, there's been multiple, you know, details given to mimics throughout the editions. And this information can easily be found at Forgotten Realms Wiki, where I pulled a lot of this from. There was a couple that described how they recreate, like, the texture and coloring of stuff. Uh, One that I found interesting. Like, some just say that they can change their skin texture and color to match different materials, stone, wood, metal. Right. The default assumption with basically everything D&D is that it's magic. Yes. They do it because it's a magical ability. But there was one that described them having the ability, especially for the classic treasure chest form. It said that they had pigment fluid that they could pump through a capillary system of vessels underneath the just underneath the surface of their skin and that it was a brown pigment that would give them the coloration of wood and that the capillary patterns would reproduce the grain of the wood. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Which does not give the how they could form other objects, but for that classic old school right, you're a door or yes. you're a chest. It gave how they're recreating some of that. It also noted that their skin was covered in light-sensitive sensors of some sort that allowed it to detect what was around it, but also made them sensitive to, like, sudden bright light. You know, so if you suddenly expose them to sunlight or something similar, they would could potentially be blinded. Like, the light-sensing organs they had could be damaged. Mm-hmm. And it noted that the adhesive they use to capture you when you grab it is also their main form of locomotion. So like a snail slime trail. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Every description of a mimic's behavior just describes them as predators. They often move around. So that was something I found interesting that they were not described as like taking the form of a thing and then staying there for months and months. And they are active in finding spots and searching for new food. So they are moving and hiding and moving and hiding right, regularly. Yeah. If their passage of the dungeon is rarely visited, they'll go find a more trafficked area. Exactly. There are some things, I think these are expansion rules that have described colonies of mimics. Sure. That also have that telekinetic ability among the mimics of the colony. Gotcha. That's something unique to mimic colonies, that they form this social thing. And if I'm right, in those books, it's described that like you could come across a ghost town. That is mimics. Yes, the whole town is all mimics. Every chair, all the buildings are, the doors, the walls are made up of mini mimics that can function to either feed on travelers or even as a town almost. Mm-hmm. That they can function as a little self-sufficient or even potentially interacting. Oh, weird. I love it. It's so great. There's a great picture of like <laughs> a couple of people having tea and the chairs they're sitting on have teeth and eyes and the tables yep. and like that <laughs> they're just living their life. But the surroundings are mimics. Cool. They also noted that they don't need a ton of food. It was put as a meal of one or two humanoids could sustain a mimic for several weeks. Okay. So very efficient, not super hungry. Handy if you're in a dungeon where not a lot of people come through. Indeed. And that they do, in fact, reproduce by splitting, by budding. Okay, that makes sense. They split, and now there are two mimics that'll be full adult mimics. The source is said in a few years. Okay. So, yeah. You covered some of the subspecies. There are also typically two groups of mimics given. The smaller, more cunning ones, which are the typical mimic. Mm -hmm. There are also, will often be listed, larger, more aggressive mimics, which are called killer mimics. 
that can take on larger objects and are typically less intelligent, harder to negotiate with, more prone to just attack to try to kill. Yeah. So they distinguish that, like, this one's just, it's going to take the form of a whole wall, and it's just going to try to kill you. You might be able to negotiate with the treasure chest. Right. <laughs> but besides that, that's about it. Mimics are pretty straightforward. I've, yep. So uh, For something that is so complex and variable, pretty straightforward description. Yes. So we now can get ready to start evolving our own spooky version. But before yes. that... The magic disclaimer. No magic. No magic. So we always like to remind that there are some things that cannot be evolved, whether that's a technological thing that would have to be invented so it can't be evolved, or a magical ability, supernatural capability that's just physically impossible for biology. Yeah. Here on the show, we are using the toolkit of natural selection to produce made-up organisms, and natural selection can only get you so far. Yes, and earthbound anatomy can yes. only do so many things. <laughs> so the magical ability to transform into something, we're going to have to approximate. Yes. So with all that being said, how do we evolve a mimic? The main thing that I think we're going to have trouble with is we need something that can take multiple forms unless we're wanting to go with different kinds of mimics for each of the things that they might be mimicking. Right. The, the table and the door and the chest are all different species yes. or something. And one of the key things with mimics is that that is not its form. Yes. it Its true form is a, a blob of goo. Yes. Now, when we're talking about mimicry and organisms that are really good at impersonating... And I have a couple of ideas uh, in the natural world of where we could go with this. Mm. I think that we have to at least mention cephalopods again. Yeah, it's hard not to. Because there is a creature called a mimic octopus. Mm -hmm. And this is what it does. Well, that's... Is it mimics other organisms impeccably well. And just octopuses in general. Like, there's so many videos of them hopping onto a piece of coral and then just blending perfectly. And just transforming into coral. Into that coral or that rock. You can see them try to blend into the the <laughs> sides of ships that they get brought up in when they're caught in bycatch mm -hmm. or weird patterns that we get. Like, they are very good at seeing something and saying, I'm going to now try to look like that. Not that I am specifically evolved to look like that thing, right. like a leaf insect. They are on purpose impersonating things. Yes, which is one of the things a mimic is all about, that it's they are crafty. They are selective with what they mimic Yes, to choose something that's enticing. So there is certainly a cephalopod root to go down there. That also, if it's an octopus sort of thing. That fits the blob of goo. It absolutely, it would look like a blob of goo. <laughs> if you turn, and I think one of the things so that their base color is gray, but I often see them as black, like inky black when I, sure, sure. an artist actually draws them. But yeah, if you just had an octopus that turned, gave up on its disguise and was now just a pile of shifting blackish gray. Uh, yeah, at a glance in the heat of the moment, you're not going to be like, well, there are the eyes. There's the siphon. There's right. four, you know, four of the eight. No, it's, no, it's blob of goo. It's a puddle of blob, puddle of goo. Now, the other idea that I had, because mimics are weird mm -hmm. and even a, even a cephalopod has limitations, is that perhaps what we interpret as a mimic is a colony of smaller organisms. Yes, yes. Which can get you the blob of goo thing. It can also get you the mucus. Yes. 
So in my mind, the animals that I'm going with uh, in my head would be something like nematode worms, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where it could be a colonial group of nematode worms who use a mucus as cement to keep themselves all together. Yeah, that makes Which sense. is something we see in colonial organisms, something we see a lot in like bacteria, where they'll have a cement for the bacterial colony. Oh, and that's very much where my brain was going as the other option would be like a slime mold. Mm-hmm. That's what the blob from the classic. Yes. Film, that's what the, <laughs> the blob is, is a slime mold. That's what it was inspired by. So you get that pseudopod amorphous natural shape. Uh, you also get that odd amount of intelligence almost. Yeah. Like slime molds have been studied time and time again for the fact that they, for an organism that doesn't even have nerves... Like, these are not a branch of life that has a nervous system, so they don't have anything we recognize as a brain. Mm -hmm. But they have a way of interacting with their environment that lets them problem-solve, kind of. Like, they can solve mazes to find the quickest route to food by spreading out and leaving trails of slime to denote where they've been so that they don't try that path again. Yes, slime molds are shockingly intelligent, for an organism that is a blob of cells. Yes. Very odd. And I, slime mold also came to mind mm-hmm. for me as well. Now, if we're going with something like slime mold or like a bacterial colony or a pile of worms, that makes it a little harder to justify them choosing an object to impersonate. Yes. But I could certainly imagine any one of these options evolving a camouflage habit where they take on a form like a tree or a rock or flowers and they get really good at taking on specific shapes for blending into the ecosystem because that keeps them safe yeah and it could be something where like color morphs within a species where you you can have striped spotted and solid colored individuals of a species that are all the same species And those colors are going to be passed down to their young, but it's just morphs of that species. These Mm. aren't sub, these aren't even subspecies, just these color patterns are all possible within this one species. The other option is maybe these are colonies of things that get in the habit of they originally form on an object and Mm -hmm. then they are able to reform that shape. Of where they originally lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that if it grew on a tree and it developed around the tree, if something happens to the tree, they grow in the shape of a tree to maintain that space in the environment so that they're not being preyed upon or so that other organisms are bringing nutrients to them because they're being treated like a tree. Yeah. Or something like that where they have a template from early on in life. I like that. I also had the idea kind of similar to that. Is what if the what if it what if they're two separate parts that the predatory pseudopod and and goopy part of the mimic and the mimicry part of the mimic are separated and it's a symbiosis so that like, I was thinking of like lichens where the algae provides the structure and the fungus grows among it and and on it that maybe there's something that grows into the shape. And mimics the thing that then the slime mold or the colony is housed within. Yeah, that that there is a shape-shifting colony of something that is home to something predatory. Yes, and it could still be that, like, you know, they it can't the thing that once it becomes a chest can't then become a table, mm-hmm. but they can form multiple forms. 
and then you have the symbiosis of once the slime mold feeds on something, it shares the nutrition with its symbiosis partner. Sure, sure. You could even, that would even put the additional selective pressure on the colony to come up with a form that is suitable for its symbiont. Yep. That is going to attract something and provide food for the predatory half of the partnership. Yes. Well, because then that could also serve double duty of if I look like a treasure chest, I'm going to avoid the herbivores or the whatever it would be that eats Mm -hmm. whatever that other partner is. And I'm attracting prey. Right. For my, my goop. And I do like the idea of some kind of organismal organization that evolutionarily developed the habit of impersonating objects in nature, uh, trees and flowers and whatever, but have since moved into human-occupied spaces and have found a bunch of new things to mimic. Yes, precisely. And it could even be that maybe what they're adapted for hunting isn't humans most of the time, but like rats Mm -hmm. or pigeons uh, the kinds of things that tend to live in human spaces that are attracted to certain objects Mm -hmm. that a chest or a cabinet right something made of wood might be attractive to things like small mammals that want to hide there or even like termites that come over here and try to start a colony and then they get gobbled up by the things that are in there yes I like that. I do like that. Now, as far as the impersonation, yeah. uh, one of the reasons that I originally was thinking worms or something like that is because I don't actually know of examples off the top of my head of worms adjusting their color and texture the, the way that other animals do. But I can imagine worms doing that. True. I can imagine that ability developing within worms. Very true. So that that could be a fit. And that's the same thing with, like, slime molds, great for the slime part. Well, see, both worms and slime molds have that great for the, the pseudopods and the, the blob. And the mucus. Yeah. Like just that that stickiness that but works really well. The It's the mimicry part that they, they lack. Mm-hmm. Like, it's I have trouble figuring out, picturing the worms forming a solid structure by themselves mm-hmm. as easily. Which is true for most of them, like, even a cephalopod, which would be able to mimic really well if, as soon as you touched it, it wouldn't feel like a chest or, or a door or a table. Right. Now that, we want something that is a little bit harder. That does bring to mind things that have harder outer surfaces. Mm-hmm. And there are ants yep. that do all sorts of wacky stuff with their colonies. Yep, yep, yep. And form shapes with their bodies. Well, and you have lots of mimicking insects that take on the the appearance of something else with their the shape of their limbs and the shape of their exoskeleton and mm-hmm. can fold up to look like something. Sure. Aren't there also ants that have like big flat heads to block up the entrance to their colony and stuff like that? Yeah, they, they have shields for heads to close the op- entrances. Yeah. Could you have a colony that is full of ants with shield heads and <laughs> they form a surface, form the solid surface? <laughs> so all the other ants are holding them in place, but the shield headed ants form a flat area yeah potentially (laughs) though i guess the main thing that you'd be you'd be having trouble with there is how does it change color or has it right maybe maybe you have different versions Mm -hmm. of those ants that have different colors yeah like you've got the wood ones and if you're not turning into something wooden they stay on the inside yep and the metal ones are the ones that are forming the surface or something like that yeah you just have to have a somewhat restrictive color palette to make it 
reasonable and uh, mm-hmm. so that we don't have a rainbow's worth of different ants right it's like yeah the pink ants just never get used <laughs> <laughs> and i think it could depend you could have colonies that adapt different features based on their environment yes so they, they could sh- lean one way i don't dislike that well and that's part of why i was thinking of the symbiosis that if you had something that was structural like a mm-hmm. plant that sure. could grow into the Ooh. shape of, you know a plant or an algae or a fungus that's like, no, I'm going to actually grow a hard body that feels like a chest, but inside my honeycomb structure is the goop that's going to attack, whatever that goop is. That's where that's part of where my thinking was for that symbiosis angle mm-hmm. was that gave us the actual structure of the mimic, sure, the mimicry. Sure. And that wouldn't be too bad with something like a fungus, because there are fungal bodies that grow really fast. Yes. So you could get a growth that is directed in part by the symbiont. Yep, yep, yep. And so I like that one. That one is, I guess the the really the trickiest part is it's hard to think of a way for the mimicry to be even close to as perfect as it's described. Yes. Without it being something like a cephalopod that's doing it on purpose. Right. Because otherwise... The only reason, you, like the only reason, stick insects and leaf bugs are so good at what they do is because the ones who aren't good got killed and eaten. So you you had the bad mimics get slowly selected against, which means there would have had to be tons and tons of poorly created chests and doors that adventurers were slaying until we finally had the perfect ones. Which it isn't impossible, but it, I don't know. It, it feels like that fits less with the monster mm-hmm. at least oh yeah just for me it feels like that doesn't fit the mimic idea that that's just trial and error as much it's not impossible though well one way we can get around the perfect mimicry angle is we could exploit the fact that uh, dungeons are dark yes yeah no that's very true <laughs> maybe these are approximate mimics and they live in an environment where they don't have to be a perfect mimic, mm-hmm. where being a partial mimic is sufficient, or you're just mimicking the part that matters. The way that whatever organism it is you're trying to fool, the way that that organism senses the environment, that's the aspect of the object that this colony needs to impersonate. Yes, that's true. And that is a, that is definitely a helpful aspect of being in a dungeon. I did just, this was just, it kind of popped in, a thing, how could you get a perfect mimicry? And it's similar to what you were describing of what if the colony, you know, the whatever it was, took the shape and then was able to recreate the shape. But what if they just took the object? What if it was a colony of termites that finds a wooden structure, hollows it out, and then is sitting in wait for when you go to open that door, there's a bunch of soldiers with, and if we go with the like termites that have the nozzles on their head to spray toxins and adhesive stuff to fight off intruders. Oh yeah. You could have them with little portholes all around the outside of it. You touch it, they spray you and then a swarm of termites comes out. They start swarming out. And that could even be, you could say that the force of the attack of the colony destabilizes the actual structure. Oh yeah. And it falls apart while all these termites are coming out, but now they have a feast for a while, and then they have to go find another object to um, to infiltrate and set up as their next uh, ambush. Exactly, because then you have it seeming like the door came alive because mm-hmm. they've completely hollowed it out. 
Yeah. yeah. And they got, you know, they can pull some nutrition from the wood, but maybe they're not as efficient as sure, sure. Well, other maybe, termites. And maybe they could do the thing that like ants will, will do where they'll, they'll send workers out to go get little morsels and stuff yeah. and bring it back to sustain the colony over long periods of time. But then every now and then you have this feast for the whole colony, and maybe that feast is what gives them the energy to reproduce. Yeah. Well, and now two new colonies spread out and oh, go to find yeah. things. I like that. Each time they feed, that's how the colony reproduces. Well, and I, I like it also because then it this behavior could have started as a defensive thing of like, all right, we're going to oh, hollow yeah. out this wooden thing. Soldiers, if anything touches this, I want us to react. And it was just a species that had a, a very aggressive reaction, like fire ants, where... Mm-hmm. If you mess with our colony, we're sending like half the colony out to bite whatever it was that stuck a finger in here just because that's our that's our defense strategy. And then that often it would mean you ended up destroying the thing you were in. Yeah. And then at some point you realize, oh, hey, if we kill the thing that (laughs) that attacks us, that's a lot of food. I do like the idea that it was a defensive thing. But then every now and then it'd be like a spider or a dragonfly and they would die in that attack. So then the colonies that were able to use those nutrients survived and continued to develop that attacking strategy until they were able to take down big things. Yeah. The other thing I like about that is that it's easy to see how that could start in a natural ecosystem. Yes, exactly. That what you're infiltrating are shrubs or trees or dead logs. Yep. There's plenty of wooden objects out there that you could burrow your way into And then that ends up translating very well when humans come along and start building chairs and tables and doors out of wood. Yes. Same strategy still applies. And you could have ones that maybe specialize in other structures that aren't wood, but have crevices and, you know, like a a metal structure where there's still spaces in between the metal and within the, so that they can still form a colony inside and still attack yeah, well, and you could even have, so I, I, the two thoughts I had was one, you could have partially wooden structures mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, this tool, right, the handle is wooden so that that can still function as the home for the colony. Yeah, or a reinforced door. Yeah, absolutely. But also there are organisms that have materials corrosive enough to eat into rock and Ooh, eat yeah. into stone. If there is like a wall the mortar in between the bricks might be something <laughs> that they can dig into. Or if it's just an old structure and there's just lots and lots of years of burrowing and pockmarking in the bricks or in the stone or in the wood, those are all places for these termites to get into. Oh, and that that makes me think of the, the shield head ants uh, and your idea of them forming the surface. Termites are great at building back, like using their dung and dirt and stuff Mm -hmm. and spit, they can make cement. And so they could find some pockmarked thing and then fill in the surface. Oh yeah. Make it seem whole again. Make it seem whole again. Oh yeah. So that they can (laughs) repair it a bit. Oh, and now they can hide within. With that idea in mind, you could even have, so in the, in what I described is you're in the chair And when you attack, it destroys the chair because just the force of that attack, the chair is no longer the most important thing. We've got all this nutrition. We'll get a new chair. If the chair is only partially destroyed, they can build it back. Or to go way back to one of the earlier suggestions, maybe the termites are able to recreate the shape of a former colony. Yeah. That if they inhabited a treasure chest or inhabited a chair, 
the colony developed a pattern of behavior of operating within that shape. Yes. So that if they go to a new place, if there's enough raw material there, they can build back that shape, kind of like a termite mound. Yes. You're building a mound, but because your last mound was the shape of a treasure chest, that's what is built into your colony's cooperative behavior is something in the shape of a treasure chest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it'd be kind of like the honeycomb uh, with bees that they have this geometry built into their instincts that they, if there is a space this big, they fill it with honeycomb mm-hmm. and they always match the exact same hexagon angles and pattern that they could, these termites could have a very geometric building instinct and are able to recreate some simple structures which would also work really well with repairing a thing to where it's like, yeah, if this percentage of that thing is still standing, you can recreate the surfaces. And they're actually extremely good at making a flat plane that's in line with where the surface of the chair yeah. would have been because they have a geometric building sense. I really like this idea because it means not only would they be do a really good job impersonating the intact structure of the thing, But it would also mean that during the process of infiltration, they could hide their activity very effectively. Mm -hmm. You won't find little holes all over it where they've buried in because they're blocking those back up. Yes. So they could get into a piece of furniture and then you wouldn't notice it until the colony had expanded to its full size and then emerged to eat the next person that touched it. Yeah. And I like the idea that this could move into human spaces and, again, could start out as, well, yeah, pigeons live here and rats live here. And if we impersonate a structure, we end up catching some of those. But then every now and then it's like, yeah, this bed, these people were off on vacation and these termites got in and they infiltrated the bed and then they waited there. And when the people came back, the bed fell apart as all the termites came out of it. Yep. Because you could see... If it started in nature as a tactic for getting spiders and dragonflies and stuff, if you're infiltrating trees and things, that could easily build up to squirrels and birds and even bears and stuff. Yes. And if the colony's big enough, it can take down a very large creature. Which is what I was just thinking. This gives us the ability to have the horde mimic and like large full wall size. Like yes. If if a colony finds a particularly productive dungeon, mm-hmm. just, the food source is readily available and it is continuous. They could just fill a room and just get bigger and bigger. And the horde would work great because now it's we're just going to put the gold coins back on the outside every time. Yeah. We're just moving them always to the outside and we have us we have a sense we have a crow sense of shiny things, collect them, add them to the walls. Yes, not for the stability, inside. for structure. Yeah. Add them to the walls of the colony and the whole colony will glisten and, uh, and, and shimmer. Yeah. And that is another thing that could start out as a tactic for attracting birds or yes. rodents, which are often attracted to shiny looking things. Absolutely. And it just so happens that every now and then a person comes by and sees the shiny stuff. This Ooh. also, because I was also thinking about the horde and I was thinking about your ghost town example. Yes. You could get a scenario where there is a town and it has been abandoned and these termites have come in. And if there's enough bugs and birds and rats and feral cats and stuff that have made this place their home, the colony could continue to spread such that you could have an entire house 
that is infiltrated by these termites. And if nothing comes along after a while, they might have to move. Yes. Uh, They might just disappear. This just isn't here anymore. Well, and and if you wanted to have that colony scenario, uh, there are the Argentine ants that are famous for creating a super colonies mm-hmm. where when the, when these ants split into new colonies, they still recognize each other as the same colony. Mm-hmm. So you can have multiple nests of ants spread out over miles and miles and miles, and you can take an ant from one and drop it in another. And they'll be like, yeah, no, you're one of us. Yeah. And they just, they're just right at home. So there are colonies of these ants that span literally continents so if you had something like that where the mimic termites don't react the same, don't react aggressively to other colonies, you could have mergings of colonies. Mm-hmm. You could have multiple queened colonies. You could have neighboring colonies that aren't competing because they all see each other as potentially allies. Yeah. Ooh, you know what else? So in the description of the horde mimic, one of the main attack that it gets is a caustic mist. Oh, gross. That it fills the room with this poisonous gas that is harmful. If we wanted to impersonate that, you could just have flying termites yeah. that emerge in a swarm that bites and spits and everything and attacks all the people that have disturbed the colony. Absolutely. You can also have them spraying stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of And there was a spitting mimic, mm-hmm. and they could be spitting their adhesive and their, their acids. Yes. Ants will do. There are ants that spit acids. Yep. And there's termites, like I said, that have nozzles on their head. Mm-hmm. Squirt guns for spraying chemical warfare against intruders and other colonies i really like the idea that in this context it wouldn't be that the horde termite colony made a deal with a dragon but that the dragon would like put some gold in there knowing that this colony is there and create a decoy horde and then go live somewhere else yeah it's it's just an investment (laughs) Well, and the other thing that's cool about the Horde one in that sense is every adventure they kill will just add to the Horde as yes. they strip the body and then go, oh, we found shiny bits. Yep, there's gold. Let's there's carry some, these back. There's some daggers in here. <laughs> oh, so we have a termite colony mm-hmm. that started doing what termite colonies do. Yeah. They, they live inside pieces of wood, things like that, and then developed a defensive mechanism of spraying acid and or adhesive out of the pores in the wood to ward off threats. And to send warriors, soldier casts out to aggressively attack. Yes, to bite and spit and stuff, which early on would have been a great tactic for getting birds and spiders and stuff to go away so that they're not damaging the colony or damaging the tree, but then gradually developed this habit of if something died in the attack, they could absorb those nutrients. Yes. Kind of like carnivorous plants. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you you can absorb some of that nutrition. And now there was selective pressure for your attack to do a really good job destroying whatever's attacking the place. And then you can feed upon that body. Yeah, which could have been triggered very simply by this termite colony developing omnivory. Mm-hmm. That instead of just eating wood pulp, They're able to digest animal material. Sure. It could even start out if the thing that you caught is a squirrel or a bird or a bear or something, 
that what they originally were doing was burrowing inside to get the plant material yes. that was inside the gut <laughs> and along the way would get some nutrition from the meat that they were digging through yep. until they developed true omnivory and were now able to purpose the whole carcass. Gross. And I do really like the idea that if this is an essential part of colonial reproduction, like that boom of nutrition, then it would make sense that when the right opportunity came out, the colony would go, all right, this whole place is coming down because every available termite is rushing. Nothing is keeping the stability. We're going to tear apart our home to get at the attacker. So it looks like the chest or the tree or the chair is becoming this blob creature yeah. that is attacking. And then once the attack is over, they just happily feed for days or weeks or months and then spread off in different directions to go find something else to infiltrate. Yes. I really like our mimic. It's so it's so creepy and, and, and insidious. Oh, I love it. Oh, and it's termites. Yeah. Which is such a cool, like what a, it it is very, I, we did start with a colony idea and it makes total sense to just go with something that already does that. Yes. <laughs> that yep. already makes colonies. I like spooky discussions like this one and the Displacer Beast, where we start talking and we're coming up with a bunch of different examples. And I don't know if it's obvious to the <laughs> listeners that we're sitting here kind of like, yeah, hmm. Yeah, nah. There are a couple of pauses of silence where we're both just pondering yeah, that will this, get cut out. None of this is really grabbing. And then we find it. Yeah. <laughs> it's termites. Yep. Ah, uh, this is a great idea for an evolved mimic. This is so much fun. Well, and it makes it so it can adapt to different dungeons easily. Yeah. Do you have stuff in your dungeon? Well, they're going like even if it's like a hole in the wall where like a previous fight blasted a chunk of rock. Well, if there's rock dust, they can form a new wall, a new section of that brick and fill it in with their colony with their termite cement. Yeah. And glue it all back together. So now that brick looks pristine until you touch it. They could even have evolved the habit of creating false branches on trees. <gasps> yes. So that they can create a shape that looks like something. Yep. So that they can go, yeah, we 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 know colonially what that sort of long tapering shape looks like. We can just build a false branch. That's just another area where we might catch something out here on the branch. And that habit might translate to building things that kind of look like furniture yes. or kind of or fill in the wall or fill in the doorway or something like that. Yeah. Well, and, and this is another one of those like when we were talking about the slime mold. There's been tons of studies into ant colonies and beehives and I think termites, but especially with ants and stuff of showing how complex their problem solving and their group cooperation and group decision making is mm -hmm. where like there are situations where ants will need to go find a new home because their colony's gotten too big and i can't remember which kind of ant it was but that they will send out scouts and the scouts have ways of measuring spaces yep. to see is this space big enough for the colony so they have a system a instinctual system of i enter a enclosed space and i will now start it's like when you go through a labyrinth and they say if you always take a right turn you'll eventually make your way through <laughs> a labyrinth as long as there's no roundabouts if they start doing that they go all right i turn this way i walk until i hit a wall i walk until i hit a wall i walk until i hit a wall and that will give that ant enough information as to whether or not this is a good space and it will go get other ants to confirm 
you could have something like that with these termites where no, they can't like take a look back and to look at the thing like an artist and go, okay, okay, we're dealing with a chair. All right. Yeah, I'll, let's build a chair. I'll guide you from here and I'll, but they could have something of, they send out scouts that walk the surface and say, all right, it is effectively this many paces up and down. Yeah. It is this wide. It is made out of poles. Mm-hmm. It is made out of, you know, these, these slender parts and that they have a way to roughly simulate and, and measure the thing and their instincts match just how roughly to build that kind of stuff. Yeah. I so this this limits our mimic to wooden things. Yes. For the most part. I and mean, we talked about how they could get into porous things, they could get into yeah. brick, they could get and into And if they rock. have material that would allow them to sure recreate the surface, they could blend in. And I do like that. I like that angle if we want to have as much of the mimic idea as we can. But I also kind of really like the monstery aspect of it being specific, mm-hmm. and it's just wooden things yes. are potentially dangerous. Yes. Like anything you can think of that is made of wood or something like, like they could do plaster like the walls in a house. That's easy. <laughs> well, and the thing that is also fun about this is like they are limited to the number of things they can turn into. So they can't actually turn into a metal mace. That is right. full, like a, like a solid lamp. metal. Yeah. Like, no, you can't quite do that. But adventurers wouldn't necessarily know that. And just like players, the first time <laughs> they touch a door and it bites them, once bitten, twice shy, you're going to have every person that goes in a dungeon, they go, blah, 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 blah. Don't, don't pick that up. Don't touch that My sword. My friend was eaten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just, you're going to be paranoid of anything because you don't know what they can and can't turn into. And what's the writ? And the risk of finding out is too great. Yeah. And I also, I do like the extension of if it has hollow spaces in it, they might be able to do it anyway. Oh, yeah. If it's a suit of armor. Every now and then someone does get attacked by like a pile of bricks or something. And they're like, all right, I guess it's everything. Exactly. Yeah. It's a (laughs) hollow suit of armor that's on display. And they're like, well, no, they can't turn into metal. And then they swarm out of the armor and they go, you said they couldn't do metal. Yeah. This is an idea that is so cool that I kind of actually want to use it in D&D. Right? This this would be an awesome version of a mimic to throw in the game. I'm thrilled with this. Well, and the thing that makes it also fun is since it's a used social group of insects, it makes them oddly passive and uncaring. Yes. Like just emotionless. There's an intelligence there, but you can't comprehend it. No, it's a it is, hive intelligence. Yes, because it is made out of multitudes. And it's just that you are just fuel for them to breed. That is that they, they don't there's no malice Ooh. here. Well, and if we wanted to be really mean about it, uh, termites are not the only insects that form you social colonies. Mm-hmm. By building inside of other stuff. Very true. There could be a same kind of mimic creature that is ant colonies yep. or wasp colonies. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, like termites are notable, noted for living inside wood and they have the nozzles and they're really good at digesting the wood. Yes. But ants and wasps, even beetles and things, oh, yeah. will make their homes inside hollow structures and they'll burrow through. This could just be a thing that a bunch of different insect groups have evolved the habit of doing. Absolutely. And a wasp mimic is like... (laughs) 
like I said earlier, sadistic. Yes. <laughs> yes, if you are a if we are truly cruel inventors of the spooky verse, the wasp mimic would be the one that we put out there. Well, and the other thing that's nice about that being eusocial and uncaring is if I remember right, mimics are listed as unaligned. Like Yeah, they're neutral. They're neutral. They are just they're just here to feed. They're just hungry. They're not they don't hate, they don't help, they just are hungry. And I like that. It's like, yeah, there's no negotiating necessarily with this. There's no befriending it. It just is. Yeah. And that's great. I love it. Which means you also could get around them by potentially providing food. Yeah, absolutely. Go, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Toss a piece of ham onto that chair and he goes, blah, blah, blah. So, all right, well, they're going to be busy with that. Or the door. Yes. And you say, here's a, here we're going to just lay down some, uh, a trail of meat and the door will fall apart and follow it, and then we can go through the doorway. Yeah. And they're they're going to be content with that meat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it also means that you could be a, a cruel wizard who creates a dungeon, and you could intentionally seed mimics in yes. it by starting a <laughs> colony. You could have, all right, here's this treasure chest. And then have a starter group of termites mm-hmm. and put them in there and then just leave. Or it's or it's that it was a wizard's old, you know, lab or, or area. And this this was just its pet colony you know, that it used to have <laughs> that they used to have in their glass. Like, those like your domestic beetles. Yeah. <laughs> and then they got loose and it infiltrated the whole of their their domain. Oh, man. <laughs> so we've got a termite colony mimic. I'm very That's happy with it. Awesome. This year's Spooky has been a ton of fun. It's been so great. So now we have our monotreme echidna owlbear. Our giant echidna predator. (laughs) Our terrestrial carboniferous eurypterid predator. Our sea scorpion displacer beast. (laughs) (laughs) Our abundance of beholders. Yes. From cephalopods to giant spiders. (laughs) And then our... Sticky ambush hunting predatory termite colonies. I think one of the things that makes me so happy with the termites is they don't get to be scary very often. Yeah. No, I love that it's termites. Yeah, termites so often are just shown as like, <laughs> oh, the the easygoing, benign versions of ants. It's like, no, we're going to make ours eat people. <laughs> yeah, we turned a lot of animals into true monsters yes. this year. <laughs> Listeners, we hope that you've had a great time listening to our spooky. As usual... Let us know what you think. Yes, please. You can comment on all the social media. There's going to be channels in our Discord specifically for Spooky. Absolutely. Check in the episode description for hashtags and for our social media handle so that you can at us with your ideas, with your discussions. If you make any art, we'd love to see it. We we love getting fan art for Spooky so much. There is a whole page of it on the blog that you can go look at previous years of fan art for other monsters we've added to the spooky verse. Yep. Uh, link to that also in the episode description and thus concludes 2022's spooculative evolution run. Absolutely. We can wrap up this year. So it will be next October that we come up with a new list of spooky creatures. Yes, another theme. We will have to consider what other themes of monsters we can do. This this is going to be a tough one to top, potentially, because this was a lot of fun. This was awesome. We are recording this before October, but we are super excited to watch people's responses and reactions over the course of the month and see what input we get from our audience. We really like doing these. Absolutely. And if this was your first year of Spooky with us, let us know because that's fantastic. And go check out the other seasons. We've done multiple years now. We've done different groups. 
We did classic movie monsters. Yeah. We did monsters of Greek mythology. We did sea monsters. And we did plant monsters last year with Allie. And now fifth year, 20 episodes of Spooky officially. 20 plus different monsters that we have created. We've got quite a thriving spooky verse now. And I feel that's fitting that we got to 20 with D&D monsters. <laughs> a natural <laughs> 20, everyone. It sure is. That's, it is a natural 20. And I, I say these termite mimics are critical hits. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Happy Halloween. Happy spooky season. Happy speculative evolving. <laughs> See you all next year. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.